I'm on the board of Captain Planet Foundation, getting people to do storage. And ultimately, I think that storage is a better investment for anybody, even more so than solar. But they say, hey, you're not going to have power today. Actually, my kids are going to see cleaner air mm. than I ever did. Welcome, everybody, to Learning with Lowell. Uh, today, we're joined with Kiki Gaucher, which I pronounced right. Uh, for everyone, longtime listeners will know that I am terrible with names. Uh, she is a producer, a director, and activist. She has produced uh, and made many documentaries that are fantastic, including Not Alone, which is a documentary about teen mental health, mental illness, and suicide, Empowered, which is the focus of today's episode, which is focused on the people who are making innovations to enable humanity to create a renewable energy future, and many, many more. I was able to see the whole of Empowered, and I love it and recommend it. It's going to be in the show notes. Anyone who's interested in what we're about to talk about today needs to check it out. But Kiki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, so uh, Empowered was really a fantastic documentary. And as someone who's who makes things, but not of that level, I'm always wondering, how do you make something like that? Um, so just in terms of just looking at it and structurally, when you think of the idea, I'm going to do this thing, um, how do you start putting the pieces together? I mean, imagine there's like a Google Doc of an outline or like, what's your what's your practice to take this really large concept and to break it into smaller pieces so it can be done? Well, I started with a quick note. Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. My friend Mac McQuown, uh, I was I was totally turned on by his microgrid. Mm. And throughout our friendship, he kept inviting me to the microgrid when various researchers were coming to test out their new technologies. And um, so I started to realize that this place was a hub for innovation. And I, I said to Mac, I'd really like to do a documentary about the microgrid because I saw that really is a proof in concept that we could be 100% renewable. And he said, okay, that's great, Kiki. I'm gonna um, give you some names of people that you could talk to. Because I said, I wanna know everybody and anybody who you've been working with on this subject. And he gave me 40 names and he wrote to them and said, you know, my friend Kiki's going to be contacting you and please talk to her. She's doing this documentary. I really think it'll be great. And so that was the beginning. I started by just calling these 40 mm. individuals. And then through them, I was turned, you know, they connected me to even more people until I had talked and sp spoken to and taken notes on a hundred different researchers, um, manufacturers, policymakers, people that had to do with this renewable energy revolution. So it was pretty broad. And then I just made a schedule and said, okay, I'm going to start here in California, up here in the Bay Area. I'll go to Berkeley. I'll go to uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs. I'll go down to, to uh, Stanford and start talking to the individ individuals there. Then I went down to uh, UC, uh, UC San Diego and Scripps. So anyway, I just made this plan of all these different people that I would shoot and just even deciding who the first people were that I would actually shoot. I think I shot 30 or 40 interviews over the period of like six months, but just shooting them and real, realizing that I didn't really know what I was gonna get because in mm. a lot of ways, I was learning about the subject while I was doing it. So by the time I was finished, I felt like I got my master's in, in energy. 
I knew nothing. I mean, I really knew very little for someone who had been a, an environmental advocate and who had been knowledgeable about the fact that we needed to get off of fossil fuels. I really didn't know the details. There was so much I didn't know. So it was just this pretty much a, a personal exploration that I was lucky to have caught on film. And that's how it started. That's interesting. The, yeah, I, I, I've talked to a couple other YouTubers who do kind of this type of thing, but in everyday content, but they like really consolidate it down. But one thing that they say is that you do a lot of the work, like you're saying, you talk to a lot of different people. And then when, when they're there, they almost they almost like throw it away and they just let their curiosity guide them. And then when they go back to edit it, then they can start seeing like, oh, here's the trends of um, like you can break it into different episodes. So it sounds kind of similar to you where you gather this information and then you went and saw these people and you just kind of followed your curiosity to know what's there. Because I think the curiosity is kind of a universal thing. If you're curious about something, there's going to be a lot of people who are curious about it in the same way. Exactly. Yeah. And that is what happened. I started to see themes or things that started to come to, to, together for me. I mean, this really was like I was studying because I was mm -hmm. simultaneously reading books and going back in history, reading history books about energy, um, really trying to get the whole picture in my head. And so when I would meet someone, just like you were saying before, um, they would talk about something that I didn't know, I would go back and research that and read that and see, thanks thanks to YouTube, there are these YouTube videos that'll explain anything. So um, it was really an education for me. And, mm -hmm. and I was constantly having these aha moments like, wow, I had no idea this was so important, this one aspect, or I didn't know the connection between which I have a huge appreciation for now, the connection between policy, finance, and innovation, that it's this triangle and that it absolutely is important for all of that to come together for us to make these innovations. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about policy so much. I mean, a little bit, but uh, I didn't realize how dire it was for, for finance and for moving forward, but you have to have a plan. And that plan mm -hmm. has to be able to continue over multiple years. One of the things when I was doing episode three was looking back at the at the history of the um, Clean Energy or Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, and realizing that we had this momentum, and then it was constantly coming and going depending on which um, mm -hmm. administration was in power. So realizing that some of the the ways that our own structure and our government where you know every four years things could change has made it really difficult for us for long-term planning whether it's for energy whether it's for the environment for anything education that we kind of bounce around yeah it, it's kind of disappointing i mean not kind of it's very disappointing especially considering when you think about all the different projects that we used to do in the past that would take 10 20 30 maybe 100 years to to finish there's so many cathedrals that took over 100 years to finish and i wonder just how can we set the incentive structure so that we can slowly build something and know that it's not going to be next quarter or the next quarter or the next quarter or the next year maybe it's something that you can do by the end of 10 10 years and it seems like policy is kind of the way that we get around that short short you know uh stock price thinking um i don't know if you saw anything else the epa i, I agree it's kind of it does like come and go and uh when it goes it's really bad considering 
Wait. It's not the people working there. The people working for yeah. the EPA are very committed to the work they're doing. It's that they are sometimes derailed, you know, basically told to sit on their hands, don't do your job. Um, this this is more important. Like, you know, I think it was Nixon who said in, right after passing the um, EPA that, uh, well, we we need to like prioritize getting uh, energy before mm -hmm. the environment. So this whole idea of it being kind of secondary to our needs for energy. So um, yeah, I think I think to have this long-term plan, I think we're finally getting to that point because there's a global consensus now that we have to have this long-term plan to save the planet. And we're all feeling it now everywhere. Um, one of the first people I interviewed, um, Dr. Ramanathan, he said, you know, people aren't going to notice climate change or to care about climate change till it's in their living room. And now it's in our living room. <laughs> it's here. So mm -hmm. I, I think that we finally have consensus that uh, these, these issues are important or saving the planet and reducing our fossil fuels are, are affecting even commerce. And that's a big thing. So ooh, if it affects money and mm -hmm. our ability to make money, then, then it has our attention or if it's making people ill, you know, mm -hmm. so we're finally at that point where we see like it has its grip on everything. Everything really depends on us having a livable planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the there was a, a, a TV series called The Newsroom. I don't know if you've watched it, but in one of the episodes, they asked this environmental scientist, you know, how bad is the climate? And, he was, and the person's like, the, the person has already been born who will die from a climate related thing. And for, for me, it's, it was just so such a powerful statement because um, of other things he said as well. But in my mind, it seems that even from the 60s and 70s, people are already dying from climate related matters. Asthma right. is, is worse. And, and it was in smog infested areas, which only comes from industrialization. Um, it feels like to me, when I think about the different centuries of, of human life, like the 18th century has one vibe, but the 19th century, um, it's like the year, it's the century of steel. It's just like build, 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 go, go, go. And it seems like now we have the biotechnology revolution so we can do um, remediation of even nuclear waste or oil spills and all these other things. And it seems like we're a little bit more mindful of what happens if you can have a decentralized system, which is why I really was, I was, I thought the microgrid system, which I have read about when it comes to like Tesla and their homes and stuff like that, but this idea that you can you can network with your neighbors and uh, make a system that if something goes down, you guys are taken care of and you can make money, which from your episode, I was curious, like how, if you put it back in the at the grid, they talk about like maybe the company will pay you. And I was, I was thinking like, oh, they'll probably like jip you though. Cause like it's a big company and it's like a collective bargain and stuff in reverse. But so I looked it up and there was a person in California who was making $2 per kilowatt hour uh, and so for like three days that he was reporting on it, that he was making like 30 to $90 a day, uh, from the excess going into the grid. And normally he was, he was paying like $200 a month. And so he, he's like, he was making back through his system. It's like, that's a powerful it. microgrid. Yeah. We just had a bill passed though, that is going to make it tougher for us to mm. earn as much, um, as suppliers of energy. So for me, I've been more conscious of using all my electricity here instead of sending it back. So I have batteries now to store it so that I can use it when I need it. I, I don't have enough solar for my all my needs because we have three electric vehicles that takes mm. a lot of electricity and the house is all electric. So 
um, we use a lot of electricity. But when, yeah, that's that idea that we could share to um, across the fence, I guess they call it um, sharing. There's no reason we can't do that. But mm -hmm. especially now, one of the a few of the people that I met, I met like two or three different people that had to do that whose companies startups had to do with uh, technology, basically kind of AI that helped um, consumers and people that could generate electricity interact in a in, in a seamless way so that if the grid needed um, more electricity, they could put it out and my and my house would 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 react to that. So if it said it needed me to take it down, you know, 20 watts or whatever, that my system would do that for it and I would get compensated back for it. So this seamless way of working, uh, it, it, that's the whole decentralized thing is kind of like Jorge's thing that we were talking about. So that through AI, we can, we have the ability now to actually connect and interconnect and send our energy to the neighbor or mm -hmm. you know, wherever it's needed. Yeah, it's um, it's a powerful concept. This idea that we can be connected again. We were talking previously before we got onto the 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 recorded por portion of the the call, and uh, I was talking about how like everyone knows this. Uh, it's like cliche at this point. Like we're more connected, but we're more disconnected than ever. And but in in the history of America, every time we were successful is when we came together. In World War II, we had victory gardens. We had such rationing that there'd be a part of every community where they would grow their own food. And so it's a similar way with these. With these blackouts, with these brownouts, with these uh, climate change-related matters, where the the grid as it stands, you'd have to you have to spend you'd have to to re. I think someone told me this once, where in Chicago, if you were to rip out all the electrical and install the cutting edge stuff, it would cost more than to redo the whole United States to, with the the old system. Like it's just that expensive, and so you can you can do that, or you can update this modular system, which is then easier to upgrade in the future because it's modular. Like I love really modular systems, and so. It, the things that have helped us in the worst times, I think are going to help us uh, to have the best times now, even as we're about to face some of like some really uh, tragic times in the future. Uh, you know, people always say, uh, but when I was a kid, you know, the, everything's great. Uh, and it's like, if we don't do the right things now, when we're old, uh, we'll look back and be like, well, you know, we didn't have all this smog and hurricanes weren't hitting Ireland and stuff like that. So I really like the, like this the thematic, like poetry of like it, referring back to itself. Or if we can come back together, build these community-minded things, uh, you'll make money, and you'll be more connected to your neighbors, which is nice, unless they're you know bad neighbors, but then they can move or something. But I think that's a really powerful concept of being reconnected, like we used to be, and and like uh, during using Victor Guards and stuff like that. Yeah, one of um, one of the people uh, who really impressed me with that idea of of using the grid as it exists, but then also adding this microgrids to it and and saying well that doesn't mean we have to tear down the grid because why would we it's already there but we can make it so that it has resilience in these different pockets these this this way that it can all work together mm -hmm. um and i think i think that that's going to make everything feel a lot better the other thing when i think about the future when you were saying oh looking back it was so great when we were younger i think that actually my kids are going to see cleaner air than mm. i ever did because even when we had uh the lack of traffic during covid 
the air was cleaner than I had seen in a long, long time. And as we reduce the use of fossil fuels, I think you're going to see, you're younger than I am. I think you're going to see better skies than I ever did. Hmm. That's my hope. Well, the world is made. It too. Yeah. Because the I think we're going to continually reduce the burning over time. Mm -hmm. So I think you're actually going to see, I think you're going to see more stars at night, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see less pollution in the air. I hope cleaner oceans. You got to get rid of plastic, but <laughs> I don't know about that one. Yeah. I think the there's a report that we're like inhaling plastics, like microplastics. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a, a credit card's amount every like couple of years that we're inhaling. It's in our bloodstream. It yeah. causes all these bad, like as a, as a guy, I'm like the, my doctor says that I should go and donate blood every now and again. So then it gets the plastics out. Cause it's not like a normal way to get it out. Also iron builds up and stuff like that. But um, wow. you, you, you mentioned a minute ago that the, that they changed, they made a law in California making it so that you wouldn't get the best prices if you were to put it back in the grid. And as, since you've gone on this journey and you know more about the context of why policy, why different practices and stuff like that is there what's the logic in making it not as great of incentive to build microgrids which is how i read it when i hear that it, well it wasn't about not building microgrids it was more about it was kind of a pushback to all of the rooftop solar that we have in california we have a lot of rooftop solar and for a while they were saying it caused this duck curve where we had too much electricity sometimes during the day and not enough use but so they were kind of trying to dissuade people from selling that all back in the middle of the day and getting the same uh, a high price for it. But uh -huh. I think it was really the utility. It wasn't about what's best for the state or what's best for. It was about the utility not wanting to pay the price on that. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of a bummer. But I think what's better anyway is that it it is encouraging people to do storage and ultimately. I think that storage is a better investment for anybody, even more so than solar. Because if you have batteries, you can you can change your load. So you can pull less from the grid during those peak times when it's expensive. And that's gonna help the grid and it's gonna help you. So I would say if I had nothing right now, I used to think, oh, put solar panels up, I would get a battery. Mm -hmm. that, that's one thing that I really liked about um, the documentary is that you talked about different battery systems, not just the type of technology in it itself, but the different systems. I, I'm, I'm familiar with the the type where you you know you pump water up to the top of a hill and then you let it run down when you don't have power and that acts as a, a battery. I I didn't. It's a similar concept to the one with the hydrogen, where yeah. you make hydrogen with your excess energy and then you you use it as a fuel when it, it's lower. That's an interesting idea, uh, and it's pretty potable too. I think that you guys you guys discussed that a bit. It's like very potable. It also stores, unlike, uh, yeah, like pump hydro is something that would be great, you know, because you can do that whenever you want, you can release it. But the idea with the hydrogen is it's, it, it fits into a pretty small space. It doesn't degrade the way you don't lose energy the way you do with the battery. The battery's not going to stay charged from summer to the winter but you pump up your hydrogen in your tank and hold on to it until the winter and you know you don't lose you don't lose the energy that way so that that makes it really interesting also when it comes to i'm hoping that maybe we use it in um air travel maybe or ships other way you know other types of transportation not just cars 
but Mac actually has a um, hydrogen fuel cell car, which was kind of cool. Hmm. Are the and I think you can make them just with simple electrolysis, right? Like you don't have to do right. it's not a complicated process. No, it's just you no. run energy through water. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it is it is simple when, yeah. you, when it comes down to it. And but there aren't a lot of those machines for individuals. Although Mac did have one that looked like something you plug plug into your driveway that yeah. did both the electrolysis and the opposite, you know, made the electricity. So it was both electrolysis and generator. That would be really cool to have. Yeah. And they're not, um, this isn't the type of hydrogen that explodes. This is just hydrogen that's energy, right? Yeah, just hydrogen. Yeah. yeah, it's not like the Hindenburg, which I think was, I don't know what type of hydrogen. I, I think, think it was hydrogen. I think the problem with that was um, the the hydrogen, what, what so Sina told me, she, she's in the in episode one, so Sina Haile, she said that people think of that, but that hydrogen actually just wants to escape really well. So unlike gasoline that stays around at fuel and like collects and then explodes and it spreads out, hydrogen just leaves. It just, mm. it's one big poof, but no more dangerous than any other fuel. I'd rather yeah. have hydrogen. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if of the two, it sounds like as long as it's not like the Hindenburg, um, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want a gas leak to have a spark. If I mean, yeah, gas would, you know, not be enjoyable to be exposed to. But um, recently I had Richard Flanjon, who has worked on battery and renewable technology, actually a pretty cool person for you to connect with. But the you talked about this idea that I've never thought about before. I'm just curious what you think about it, where um, batteries, you know, batteries are small in terms of like how much energy you can store into a small place. And so he talked about how if you had a train that would basically fuel up in, in uh, t Texas, and then you just ship the train to different parts of the, the United States, and it was just a mobile battery. So you load up with energy and you just move it in. And because it's it's less space than coal, it's the same as if you're, you just change from coal uh, trains to you know hydrogen battery trains or some other type of battery train, and you just move it to these different cities. And I thought that was such a smart idea, because I always think, how can you just retool it? Because then it incentivizes people to want to do it too. Right, right. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's a weird idea. Uh, yeah, I think it's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I've always wanted to ride on a train. So it's just like, you know, how do we keep trains around and then maybe update them so you can make them more high speed? It, trains in America, like the infrastructure is not very good. They're built from the point of view of uh, transporting cargo, not people. Right. Like the right. Europe is more about people. I think it's the right. dichotomy. I've not been to Europe. I just like trains. <laughs> so like, I read about them. And I would like to, be... to go there. <laughs> Yes, I would like to go there and then, but mainly to play with the trains. So um, then, so we talked about microgrids, we talked about different battery technology, hydrogen, uh, uh, normal batteries that people can think about. Tesla is coming out with a lot more, um, a lot of really interesting battery technology. I just watched one of their keynotes a couple weeks ago and uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're like making it so that it doesn't have the rare earth metals. They're trying to work on getting it if right. they have to use it. They're trying to get it so ethically sourced. Um, but in the documentary, there wasn't, too many people using tesla type home batteries they were like using like a startup battery or like like it almost made me feel like they're like supporting local they're trying to like create like an, an ecology of people working on these technologies would was my guess but i am curious what why wasn't there more like tesla stuff in there is there were the people I like actually, was there like a i yeah. met uh catherine von berg who has simplified mm. power she was the ceo of simplified power and i actually put simplified batteries in my home Mm -hmm. because for two reasons it didn't have cobalt which i didn't want to have cobalt and 
also because cobalt has you know thermal runaway i don't want to fire i mean fire is the one thing i worry about where i live um and i didn't want to be, be we did talk about the tesla power wall in episode four mm. and I think I had a shot or two of different, you know, cars that were Teslas, but I didn't want to yeah. be too much pushing. I was making a conscious effort not to push one company, one brand mm. uh, more than another. Like, I think one of the most exciting things in transportation is the Ford 150, because mm. that is just something that's more tangible to more people. And when I think about the cost of gas here, it's about five bucks a gallon here. For people that drive trucks, which is everyone who's working, that is so expensive. So mm -hmm. for them, the electric truck, especially one that feels like a Ford, that feels like what they're used to, I think, I don't know, to me, I think that's more revolutionary than a car like a Tesla, which has become kind of associated with status or, you know, you, you the early cars were pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So more luxury than... Typical. So I'm excited about the, the electric vehicles that are the everyday people that everyone can get into. Yeah, the Ford electric truck looks fantastic. The When yeah. I look at the Tesla truck, I think it was deliberately designed to look like a piece of crap because it looks like a piece of crap. So weird. I, there's no way I want to drive that. Yeah, the, the Ford one, I actually am trying to see if I can go out to the plant and like give, get a tour and like see some of the, the people who are working there. It, it looks like just normal truck. And uh, you can actually plug it into your house and power the house for like three days, I think it is. It's like a really cool, it's really well, cool You know thing. what else? Those workers can use the battery on the truck to run their equipment. So maybe mm -hmm. they don't have to bring a, a generator. Yeah. How cool would that be? Yeah. Well, I, I like I this system. I also like that they have, the, they have the ability to do vehicle to, to home. And mm. I think that's going to be one of the most important things. There's a bill right now uh, in California. It's on the dockets, I guess. I don't know when they're voting on it um, to really make it mandatory that we be able to do vehicles to home or vehicle to grid. And that is going to be super cool for us, especially those of us who live in high fire dangers, that you would be able to at least fire up your refrigerator if you have an electric vehicle. So the more that we can use these batteries and think of electric vehicles as just rolling energy storage devices, um, the more we're going to have just ultimately more control over all of the energy we use, both at home and our vehicles, and be able to eliminate fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. Yeah, the that reminds me of something else that there's a lot of just really new interesting things from this documentary, which is why I highly recommend it. People check it out. One thing for someone who's never, I, I've only been to California like two times. I, no offense. I did not like it. It was very yellow. I like green, but uh, I don't like deserts either. Uh, so don't take it personally. But the, there um, there was a, a policy where people would turn off their, their power to try and decrease the probability that there would be a fire from overheating of the lines and stuff like that. I've never heard of something like that. And then uh, you talked about how, well, that's probably causing more harm, because then what did people do? They went and grabbed diesel and gas, and then they went and had a thousand little little fires in, in their homes. And then people started, you know, having their houses burned down sometimes if it got out of control. And um, that's such a, you make the point, like, it's like we're going backwards to try and go forward to not create like this billion dollar thing. And so I don't know if anyone ever did the math to see, like, did that actually work out to doing any real savings for the season or not? Well, I sometimes listen when it's really hot and it's a mm. high fire. We the the most 
dangerous times here are in the summer or early fall before it rains when it's windy because that wind is when the lines get you know brushed uh, some sort of branch just brushes one of those high voltage power lines and that starts a spark i mean it's it's too bad but it, that it's that simple but it is and so during high wind events we have been prepared in california to just we're going to have a planned uh, power shutdown. And we know about it. They say, hey, you're not going to have power today. We're going to have a power shutdown. And it might be between the next three days are going to be windy. So buckle up, get ready. And that, and yeah, we did have that where people were going out and filling tanks to do generators. And of course, people either poisoning themselves by bringing a generator into the home or starting a fire with it. So yeah, it wasn't a great solution, but you definitely want to prevent one of those huge fires. I mean, we that was the deadliest fire that we ever had. And it was created by the utility lines. Mm-hmm. So we have to respond to it. Yeah, the, um, it makes me think of the, there, there's, an, like we mentioned earlier, you jump around to different parts of the United States and, um, I've been reading about, I think it's North Dakota or Minnesota. It's a Northern state. I'm sorry for not getting the right one. You guys deserve the credit, but they're developing, they've been implementing new nuclear power plants so that they're like not able to react and have bad things happen. Like apparently they'll like fall into the ground and they're like micro nuclear power plants as well, but they're small. They'll power like a city of hundred thousand, but not more. So you just make a bunch of little tiny ones. Um, Were there parts of the world, which leads me to the question, are there parts of the United States or the world, if that's you know a part of it, but um, parts of the United States that you wanted to explore and see what they were doing with, to meet their energy needs, like North Dakota and their experimental, or Minnesota, uh, experimental nuclear power plants that you, you yeah, weren't definitely. able to get to? I mean, I mean, I could go on and on. There were a lot more regions, and and every region has their, I would say, their gifts. You know, like some areas had a lot of wind, and some areas have a lot of water, and. Uh, when you bring up nuclear, one of the, I always was kind of like, ooh, n- nuclear scary. But Dan Riker, who uh, I talked to when he was at Stanford, told me that small nuclear, that there's definitely a place in the, in the energy mix for small nuclear and that um, we shouldn't discount it. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, Newsom actually postponed the closing of our nuclear plant here because we need the energy until until we have more renewables online. Otherwise, we'll just be firing up more gas to make up the difference for that. So nuclear is great because it is it does not create the, the greenhouse gases. But and as long as we manage the waste and I think as long as it's small, manageable plants, I think mm-hmm. there's a place for it. I mean, I never really thought about it, but submarines are nuclear. Mm-hmm. And they worked. Yeah. We had a president that was a nuclear that worked on a nuclear submarine. He was the nuclear reactor man, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Yeah. And he he lived I think he's still alive. He's like the longest serving post president person that we've ever had in the history of the United States. Yeah. So which is to say it's it's healthy. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, the micro ones. But the uh yeah, I hope that when we do shut them down, that we don't do what Germany did and like go too far and shutting them down to the point where we're dependent on other things. It would be cool if like we could shut them down, but then like mothball them so that if like 
something terrible happened, we just roll in with some, you know, the right yeah. stuff and get it set up in like a day. You know, or, like emergency. or definitely timing. I think timing's everything. Make sure that the renewables that we have, you know, a full basket of renewable uh, sources before we just close off something that is not creating yeah. power right now. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, as long as it's not causing any trouble, any problems right now, if it was on a fault that we know is about to crack, well, then maybe we should. But otherwise, I think we should just keep it going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, there was uh, a scientist was explaining to me the what what's left over from when you nuclear when you use a nuclear uh, reactor, like the waste, even with how long we've been using them, it actually isn't that much nuclear waste. Like you could you could keep it in like it's like less than a Walmart parking lot. Apparently it's like, it's not really? that much space. Yeah. Like you think with how people talk about, about it. it. Yeah. yeah. They were telling know. me it's actually, it's pretty compact. You can reuse most of it for other things and it's not that much space. But if I ask you like, how much space do you think it would take up given how much people talk about it? It's like, it's not that much space. Like you'd think yeah. it'd be like, like football fields and massive area to like keep it safe or whatever. And it's like, nope, pr pretty, uh, pretty efficient stuff there. It just has bad branding from the seventies the and eighties. I think the, um, but I'm not sure. I didn't live through those times. I just live in this time. The so nuclear, the micro has an opportunity there. Um, batteries of different kinds. Are there? Were you? Was there a part? I really like the the aspect of it where you were able to go and kind of like follow people around. There was a town, I think in Massachusetts, where a lady was talking about the coal plant being deactivated or decommissioned or downregulated. Somerset. Yeah. Yeah. And she get, was so emotional about it, and it just made me feel a connection to the town and what she was going through. When you, um, how often were you there doing those things versus like handing off to like a an AD or something to like run the shoots and no, like I how was many there. different spots? Okay, you were all. Okay. I was at every. I was at every single thing we shot. Yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah. that one um, that was really an interesting story, and it, it 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 changed my mindset about something. When I went to that town, um, I knew that they were going to implode the the cooling towers, and I thought, wow, that is going to be a cool shot. I also went there because I went to Massachusetts and was learning about offshore wind. And they said, well, if you really want to know the story behind offshore wind in Massachusetts, you have to go meet Pat Haddad. Um, she's the one who wrote the bill. She's a big proponent. So I went down to her small town. And what I loved about her is she was like, I was fighting for, for my, you know, everything I had in me to keep that coal plant alive because that was her bread and butter. So she didn't, she didn't bring offshore wind because she was an environmentalist. She brought it because she wanted to bring um, energy as long as and the state was looking for more energy to compensate for that uh, coal plant that was being shut down. She wanted that to come through her town. And so hmm. she thought of offshore wind and then wrote that bill. There were a lot of other people in, involved in that too. But when I went to her town and started talking to people, it was the first time that I talked to people that literally were in love with this coal plant. And they were even fondly talking about, yeah, we didn't used to be able to put our Adirondack chairs out without washing them first because you'd have stripes in your back from the coal. Or yeah, our cars were filled with coal, but you know, the, the plant was so good to us, they would wash our cars and they would come and spray paint or spray wash our houses and <laughs> Instead of being upset by the pollution, they saw this coal plant. It's just a part of the fabric of the town. 
And I had never seen it that way. I'm kind of mm-hmm. heard of um, coal miners feeling that way because that's where the bread and butter of, you know, you know is for coal miners. But this was kind of the company town. This was the, this was a company town basically. And they, they were worried about what would happen without that. So I loved that episode, building that episode because it went out and something else better took its place. And that site, the exact site where the plant is, is now going to be the first manufacturing plant for offshore wind in the whole North America. So it was like such a win-win. It was such an arc. That was really fun. I loved that. Mm-hmm. And the people there were just great. And I needed I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that like it's not all great to just tear down the fossil fuel places because someone gets displaced. But you have to have in mind what's going in next and make sure that there's this safety net for people before we just make this shift. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act does that. It 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 spends money on on manufacturing, bringing a lot of jobs and manufacturing to places where they might be losing something else. Yeah, that's the unfair thing with uh, American manufacturing or producing something in America, energy or otherwise, compared to other parts of the world. It, we have the EPA, we have standards for what we produce. And so if you're building it here, you have, you, know, you have to treat your workers well and all these other things. And so if we're offshoring them to places like China, Southeast Asia, whatever, that don't have those types of uh, restrictions and they can do it for less because of those you know lack of restrictions um you're getting something but there's a cost with it and just because you're not bearing it doesn't mean there's someone out there who's not being forced to work like 14 hour days 20 hour days or whatever to produce like that little widget or whatever that you want at that price point i think like reshoring it so we can get it to a level uh, to a price point where, like people aren't too bad about it but also like making sure that people aren't I think in the modern age where like slavery, I think there's like 30 million people that are still enslaved. There's like people working cobalt mines, which is kind of like the same as slavery. It's like indentured servit- servitude almost like how do you get out of that? Um, versus what we could do is like we onshore as much as possible and then build trade relationships with those people that elevate them up at the same time versus just giving them the jobs. And then that's just getting like sucked up by the greedy people on the top and with the corruption and stuff like that at the same time. Um, I think that's the right way. I'm I'm pretty excited about all these new, because I, I know I I just like knowing that it, when I touch a product, if it's in my house or if it's a part of my life, I like that no other kid touched that product. No one else was forced to make that product. They like they they chose to be a part of it, you know. And uh, there's been a couple of people on the show that um, they're making coffee and chocolate and a bunch of other materials in the United States synthetically. Um, but well, not too synthetically, but just how they make it. But um, because like the supply chains for it involves slavery and child slavery in particular. And we right. had like America's in the I think in the early 1900s, like they we literally had like we had like strikes and people got shot just so that people like kids wouldn't go to go to work in the the, the mines or whatever. Um, so if we can get people back, give people jobs, I think that's generally a good thing for everybody. But in terms of your team and jobs, uh, what? all so looking at that one shoot as like a microcosm how many people did you need to do that because one thing that i thought was really great about the documentary is that it's a very high quality documentary but if you told me that you shot off like a camera that was sitting in your back room i'd be like oh that's pretty cool how you did that but it how were you able to do that like what was how many people did you have what was the specialized skills that they had um was there any like need equipment that type of thing yeah i always had two camera people for every interview so that i could cut between two different cameras and 
drone. I brought, I bought a drone, but I also hired different people with drones. I love drones. Drone shots are so cool. Um, and always a sound person for sure. Um, and then a couple of PAs to just help get things done. But yeah, it was a pretty tight team. And yeah. instead of, uh, and I did hire some locals, but initial my first pass with all of my interviews, I used the same team, which really helped me keep the, the shots consistent so that the interviews looked similar. Um, and that helped. We had a rhythm, you know, since we were traveling together and going yeah. to all of these things. And that helped quite a bit. We got, we got so much better. We became a well-oiled machine by the time we were finishing up. Mm -hmm. When it comes when it comes to capturing on film, like these concepts with interviews, etc., what's what's like the hardest or like what are some of the difficult things that you need to do? Because I imagine from your point of view, you have all these people working, but they're delegated to do their part part of the task. Like you're all a well-oiled machine, but I mean, there's still like monkey wrenches that fall into the to the to the machine every now and again. So what what are what's difficult about doing it? Like what is what's the well, hard part? There's always problem solving. I mean, every yeah. day problem solving, but I think sort of maybe as parents i'm used to that because things go wrong i mean you you go to interview somebody or like when we went to chicago i was telling you it was the coldest day ever in the history of chicago it was so cold that you know we wanted to do establishing shots of the area and people outside nobody was outside it was crazy cold so we literally just drove through um bronzeville hanging on to our cameraman with the doors open just drove through to get something. So you just have to improvise sometimes. Um, and like we were saying, sometimes I would interview someone and instead of just talking to me, they would be so nervous that they were giving a speech. And it's like, how do you, how do you get someone to like relax and just speak to you? And those were kind of more the things. Other obstacles, usually they have to do with location. Like you know, your location isn't going to work out or you think it's going to work out. And then you find out that they're they're sandblasting next door and it's too loud or something like mm -hmm. that. A lot of times we had problems with sound that we'd mm -hmm. be ready to shoot something be going on. And then there'd be crazy sound, you know, because you want an interview to be crisp. But um, in general, we I was really lucky. I think I worked with a good team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we recently had Oren. Stromboli, I'm saying the last name right. Once again, I'm terrible at last names. Who uh, he did this like in-person documentary where he travel around and have this person. It was actually a really great documentary. I really enjoyed it. It's like a mini series, but um, he talked about how like sometimes he would have like the first thing that he wanted to do, but it would get like rained out. So you'd always have like a, a second or a tertiary thing in case there's you know a rain uh, like uh, blasting going on or whatever, so you can't get the good good shot that you want, you can move to a secondary or third location. So how much, how much of that type of planning was in there? Um, we had to do a little bit of that because sometimes we would think we're going to shoot outside. And like you said, it's too loud. So you just have to say, can we shoot inside? Or we would say that, you know, at one of these universities, is there a room for us to shoot in? And they show us this room and it's just awful. Like it is the most boring thing you could ever possibly shoot in, you know? So you just have to kind of look around and say, is there another space? And and of course you're losing time then when you're doing that because that's the problem is that we were really on a tight schedule. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and then B-roll is always a tough one. Like how, I didn't want a bunch of hallway shots with, with the um, 
researchers, you know, just watching a researcher walking down a hallway, you know, I didn't, how many times can you do that, you know? So looking for B-roll when you're in their space, you know, at like a university, that can be tough. And you don't really know what you're going to get till you get there. Mm -hmm. The And it, it took many years. That's the thing that always surprises me. Like it takes time to get the quality in there. You know, we're talking for the time in Chicago it was like 2018, 2019. It came out, I think, 2023 in April, which this year. And so I always wonder, I was I was talking to a person who was a combat veteran and I asked him, like, do you remember, do you remember everything that you go through when you're over there? Because it's just so high energy. And that's usually how you remember things. It's either really weird or you're scared or like that's how our memories, uh, our brains work. And he said that the at a certain point, you just remember snapshots of different things. And it's actually not the worst things you remember unless like um, your brain is set up that way or that you're unlucky to be. Uh, suffering from PTSD or something. So like snapshots. And so I'm wondering, when you look at a project that's years in the making, do you remember, do you remember all of it? Or do you remember snapshots of like the rainy day when you guys maybe couldn't go outside and so you guys grabbed coffee and then did a reshoot for the next day or something like that? Like, how much do you remember? How much like comes to you when you think about it? I think I remember more the problems and then mm. how we solved them. And for me, I think the the toughest part of this entire journey was the editing because it was really hard for me to take all this information that I had and say, okay, what's the story? Because it wasn't just about like regurgitating information, like, okay, I, you know, if I were going to do maybe a bunch of small tutorials about what I learned, that'd be one thing, but I had to have some sort of arc here. It had to be a story. So I brought my daughter in and shot her into this, but you know, she came in actually kind of after most of it was done. And then I, I kind of went back and brought her to these places. But um, I decided I needed some, a millennial. I needed mm. someone young and fresh or this would be about something pertinent to her life. And that was fun. It was also a challenge because she was not an actress and she was like, mom, I, what, what do you want me to do? And I kept saying, can you come now? And she had a job, she was working at TED She'd say, I can't come this week. And I'd say, well, I really have this interview. I really need you to do it right now. She'd be like, oh my, oh my God, mom, I've got a job. I'm like, well, let's see what you can do. <laughs> so there was that push and pull between us. But in the end, I thought she did an amazing job. And I think she's proud of it now, which is really good. I, I think in, in the beginning, she thought, why did I tell mom I would help her do this project? But, you know, we had some laughs too. The mm -hmm. so, um. When it, when it comes to the getting things from people, I was watching a master class with, uh, who's the guy who does those like old timey documentaries where it's like a still photo and then he like has someone narrate over the shoulder. Um, Ken Burns? Yes, thank you. I was like, it's an obvious name. Ken, like, Ken Burns is the master. There are even shots yes. they call like a Ken Burns shot. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so it's a two-part one. Um, how much... How much do you pull from other people when you're developing your editing tastes? And uh, I'll, I'll say the second, like, how do you develop the taste of editing? I've heard many different people talk about how they, for one, they'll do like chronological, they never s take something out of sequence when they're editing. Um, or, uh, or they'll, they'll, they will take things out of sequence. Like, there's like many different ways, many different flavors. So I'm just curious, like, how do you develop your, your, your taste for editing? If it's like the, one of the hardest parts of it. So you have to like get a writer. I think kind of like you know, we went through, we went at it a couple of different ways. Mm. So there's a lot of stop start. I mean, I have so many different sequences that I created that didn't end up in the film. And I even have some, 
I have some great footage and really good people that I still haven't put into it. So I'm hoping that I'm going to go back and do more episodes. Um, if enough people want me to do it, I'll do it. I'll create more. I would love to go back and just continue because like you were saying, I shot some of these interviews in 2019. Things have changed dramatically since, since then. At the time, we didn't have the Inflation Reduction Act. So I was kind of like, you know, knuckle dragging going, oh God, is this ever really going to happen? And then, you know, so the world definitely is in a better place now with, you know, policy and things are happening rapidly and technologies now are happening are, you know, more and more places are getting their first, you know, plant. In in Ohio, I know that they're they're building two different plants to recycle batteries. And they're mm -hmm. they're also creating plants to for um uh, wind blades, things like that. So there's just so much to cover right now that I, that I could be busy 24 seven. I mean, I would never run out of people to, to focus on or technologies to focus on because it is happening fast. My daughter, Chloe actually is now working for a carbon sequestration or yeah, a carbon sequestration company. She hmm. left her job at Ted after being the host on this and said, mama, I have to work in this space. I have to work on the environment now. I can't, I mean, she loved Ted doing the Ted conferences and Ted talks, but she said, I really want to work on the solutions now. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's, that's probably the best thing that came of this show for me is that she went into that space. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, I think either before when we weren't recording or, or earlier in a conversation, you talked about how, like when you're doing this type of multi-year thing, you don't know what's going to come from it. And right. so before it even, you know, went out to the first person, you already had one life changed, which is pretty big. Like right. You know, you, you, are, you already knew you won. You may, you, you spent three years to change your daughter's trajectory in life. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. I like, just an excuse. Just say, I liked the trajectory she was on, but I, mm -hmm. it just felt better in my heart to know that this really pushed her to saying, I need to be in this space. This is what I want to work on. Yeah. And then, um, well, I think if for the, the episodes or the parts that you don't have episodes for yet, the unedited, the bonus features for right now, um, yeah. it would be pretty cool to do like a 2023 uh, accelerated edition or something where you show them in 2018 saying like, oh, it sucks out here. You know, I'm like synthesizing very smallly, but then you come in now, it's like, oh, wow, well, all this funny. Look, <laughs> we can hire people and how fast we're going. I think the, the, that, that, uh, that, that contrast would be fun. It'd be really interesting. So you, right. you do a 2.0. Yeah. I'd I love to see like, it. I'd like to the... go back to Somerset for sure. Once that plant is built, mm -hmm. um, when they're, they're, they're actually going to be making that offshore or that the cables, these huge cables that go into the ocean to bring the electricity back to the grid. It'll be really cool to go back to that town and see how it has evolved now that the, you know, that the town company is now clean energy rather than, this big coal burning plant. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so it's a multi-year project. Do you, is it like you do like a, a grant from, from the government to fund these things? Like how no, do you sustain no. it? Yeah. No, unfortunately I'm, I'm not funded at all right now. <laughs> so I need to, I need to work on that. I'm not very good at that part, but um, mm. I'm on the board of Captain Planet Foundation. So I was able to get um, donations and make them through Captain Planet Foundation. And then, um fund the project from that so uh 
when I first heard what was reading Captain Planet Foundation, honestly, I was like, oh, someone made up a foundation. <laughs> I looked into it. It's like, this is a real thing. This is fantastic. Which came first, the cartoon or the foundation? The cartoon. Hmm. That was something a... that Ted Turner and uh, Barbara Pyle worked on a long time ago. My kids weren't Captain Planet kids. I don't, I don't know when it was out exactly, but it was a pretty popular television show, mm-hmm. a, a cartoon. And um, eventually they created a, a nonprofit and uh, Ted's daughter is now the CEO of that, of mm. that um, Captain Planet foundation and they do great work their whole focus has been on elevating youth in being stewards for the planet hmm. and then your your role there is to make documentaries like to go out and no and i'm show- just on, i'm just on the board i'm i'm you know probably my role is to help make money for the hmm. ultimately to yeah. uh, keep, the, keep the keep it going but it does yeah. really good work. I'm really proud of being associated with Captain Planet Foundation. Yeah. Well, I think that if you were to have a, some type of crowdsourcing aspect to your website, Empowered, uh, and said, you know, at different mile markers, kind of like a Kickstarter, at, uh, if you were to make different mile markers, um, I think people who enjoyed the, the content so far would then be able to donate and then know what's going to come from it. I think sometimes people ask for money, like, I want $50,000 or whatever. And then, they, and then it's like vaguely like, we'll have more. But I think if you already have a sense where it'll go or you can just be like hey we're five hundred thousand dollars i'll do a lot more and i won't we don't even know how much more i'll do for whatever um i think if if you do something like that on your on your website that'd be pretty great and then maybe it, like because sometimes you get all these people interested and they want to do something and i think with a lot of the political campaigns that I, I pay attention to everyone has like five bucks to donate and then five bucks adds up pretty quickly and so it if, really if, does yeah so if you gave people an opportunity to see the five bucks does i think that'd probably go pretty far i also was really trying to get corporate sponsors because i thought i'm telling their story so if they're in the energy space like ge or or siemens or uh, people that have sunrun these companies that have either solar or really any any large corporation that that wants to get the message out about renewable energy being necessary and good, then, I mean, for that, that seems like that'd be a no brainer, but I'm Mm. not good at that part. I'm not a business person. I am totally just a filmmaker. Well, uh, you you could try some, something I've seen that makes corporate people happy is if you make it in matching donations instead. So in their Uh mind, they're doubling their money, but then in the user mind, by mind for donating, I'm doubling my money, but, they um corporations seem to like that because then if you oh, don't yeah. raise matching then they just keep to, get to keep their money so like it's like i'm from midwest so like it's like a little bargain people like bargains i feel like if you right. i don't know if you tried that yet yeah. but yeah i noticed the matching thing too with uh kqed which is our, mm. our pbs station here that people tend to give more when they hear that there's a matching fund that's a good yeah. idea i like yeah. that yeah herford international does matching funds a lot and uh they say like you know for every five dollars you put in we can uh, get people chickens in Africa and that does this type of thing. So I love I always, that. Yeah. I, I always like the tangible as much as possible because then it, I know that where it's going. Um, and that's which is great when people don't know you. Um, makes it a little easier. But so um, there's there might be a 2.0 if you get funding for, for this, yes. which would be great. Yes. And then um, you're also writing a book, which I don't know if I was supposed to mention, but yeah, uh, yeah. I'm something... just, I've just started. I'm trying okay. to take my experience and put it into a book. And this one will be a little bit more through my 
own eyes. I didn't put myself, inject myself into the um, the show at all, the television show. I, mm. I'm a behind the camera person, not in front. Um, so this one, I'm I'm able to put my voice into it a little bit more. And mm. also I'm able to put in more details that I might lose a television audience for. So a little bit more background on the science or the history or more background on the on various people that I met. Um, so that's kind of exciting for me. I mean, I have so much content. I have so many pages and pages and pages of transcripts, a lot of transcripts. And, you know, so little has actually made it on, you know, into the series. Mm-hmm. It's all about cutting. It's not about putting in so much was cut out that I'd love to put back in. Mm-hmm. Well, um, People love uh, my one of my favorite movies is Lord of the Rings, specifically the expanded edition. And what they have for those is the appendices, which are four hours long per movie. So uh, there's there's more bonus content than the films. And I love that. I I literally will fall asleep to that stuff. So people love making ups and bonus content. And it could then uh, fuel if you sell it for uh, more projects. I'm hoping to get some funds to take some of my content and make shorter pieces for educational purposes too. Mm. And I'm talking to different educators about um, making really digestible short shorts that they can use in schools and such, because there's a lot of science in here. Yeah. It's very digestible. We talked about, I don't know, Man, we talked for a while before we start recording. Know. You know, it's, it's all just like one in my head. It's just like, no, give context or people are going to be like, what are you talking about, lol? Uh, yeah, the we, we were discussing that. So that's something to look forward to. Um, that'll be in the show notes. But you, you've also worked on another project, which I was, I'm, I'm looking to talk to people more and more about mental illness because I think it's something that people don't talk about. I think that's one of the things about it. It's like mental illness makes you feel like you're all alone and like no one understands you and like no one can understand what you're going through and stuff like that. And so... I'm trying to talk about more on the show. Uh, and I, apparently I'm the only weird one about this. People are pretty open about these things, but you made a documentary about it. And you were talking about um, the struggles that teenagers go through, especially nowadays. And one of the one of the weird things that I've been learning about is that um, like ideas are viruses. Like when there has been a suicide in a, a high school, for instance, like, like you have to like put in so much support because it'll just like, it'll start propagating. That's, um, that's like, it's like a factoid. I, I'm fine saying that knowing that like, my audience is like 25 on up, so like it won't do that. Um, but in making that documentary, I thought we talked about this pre- beforehand, but like the whole production of it was teenagers. Even I think even the director was a teenager. You were just kind of like guiding. Really, them. technically, the director. Mm. I, mean, I said she was a director because I didn't want. I mean, she wanted to do a film, but she didn't know how. To, she wasn't a filmmaker. Yeah. But she was the face and the soul of the film. Mm-hmm. I would say she's the main character. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it was really important to me that that we listen to them. And I thought the way to listen was to not have experts, talking heads, adults, doctors, anybody else saying what's going on, because it doesn't matter. What we really need to do is listen, listen to somebody tell their version, their story, and not put it, put people in a category or mm-hmm. diagnose so much. Like that was one of the things... Um, some of the kids actually had anxiety, but we didn't spell it out as anxiety, but that's, it wasn't even necessarily depression. Um, each of the kids had their own different kind of mental health issue. 
but we didn't really put them in those boxes because it doesn't really matter. It was all personal. Yeah, how do you cover that then? Like, I always feel like it's such a sensitive thing. To... It was really difficult. That was a really difficult project because I'm a mom and I'm also a foster mom and I've had kids that had some serious mental health issues. So I know what it's like from the inside. And I most of all did not want to do any harm. So I didn't want a kid to come in because they liked Jacqueline, who was the host and who was cool and fun. And I didn't want them to come in spill their guts and then later have this come out in Netflix and them to just be crushed. So mm -hmm. I talked to their parents. I showed each of them their um the their full transcript and watching themselves on camera before I even started editing to make sure that there wasn't something that the parents or the children did not want in the show. And because of that, as a filmmaker, I lost some stuff that would have been really great stuff really, really good pieces, but it was more important to me that they feel safe and that they feel that they not do anything that's going to cause them any pain in their life. And when I totally was finished, so we were locked picture, I came back and showed all the kids and their parents. And there were two kids who didn't want to be in it anymore. Hmm. And that was tough because you can't, it wasn't like they were just on little ends. They were throughout the whole thing. So it means reshooting the whole thing. But I didn't care that they signed however many papers or that their parents had gone along that far. If it wasn't going to work for them, I didn't want them in the film. So that meant going back. And it cost time and money to go back and take them out. And unfortunately, I also lost two people that were covering different topics I wanted to cover. One had had a drug problem. And that was something that I thought really needed to be in the show because it was one of the teen problems that can affect mental health. And the other one had an eating disorder, which I also wanted to cover. But it really didn't matter. I had to let them, I had to like mm -hmm. take them out. And so we got what we got. And could I have, if I had more money and more time, I could have done more. I could have gotten a larger variety of kids and different issues different problems but i had to work with what i had so that's and, uh, yeah and, um so i'm gonna be covering topics like that as well on the show and um there's been a couple people who've asked is it possible to do like a whistleblower type thing where like i shroud their, like you but like with a like a black shroud over yourself like that i added on and then like slightly modulate their voice because there's a lot of they want to just tell it but they also understand like in the day of like cancel culture and like people getting mad about it and stuff like um they want the insulation at the same time I well these kids were talking to me when they were you know juniors and seniors and sophomores in high school and i knew when this came out they'd be trying to get into college or they'd be in college trying to get a job did they want this story mm -hmm. about what was going on in their life then to follow them and um that's why i took the care to really make sure their parents were on board and that they were on board. And I also edited out things that they didn't even call out, but just that I thought this is information they probably won't want out there later. You know, I, so I was definitely being a mother mm -hmm. in, in the way I was editing this too. And the good news was, and I was always worried once this went on Netflix that it was going to have an adverse effect on any of them. And I was really happy that they were all happy with the way they were represented, 
people's reaction to them was positive. Um, they didn't suffer any anything from it. So, I mean, thank God. And a few of the kids actually said that it um, it made them feel really good because people were reaching out to them and saying, this helped me. You mm -hmm. know, or, or hearing your story made a difference for me. So I think that helped is that they knew they made they made an impact. Yeah. Is um so I haven't been a teenager for a number of years. What for for now nowadays uh, for that age grouping, what how do you help kids that need help? I, I again, I think it's about asking and listening. Mm. And I don't think we ask. So one of the things I was trying to do in the film was really drive home the point that like you have to ask if you see somebody. If you think for a minute that someone's struggling or if you think for just a second that they they're down jump in and ask like ask so that you can then say i can listen i might not fix it like that's the other thing we always think we have to have a solution but also giving this idea that like what somebody really needs is to know that somebody cares and they're compassionate i might not be able to help you but i'm here i'm able to listen to you and if you want we can go together and get help or if you just need me to listen, I'm here for you. And I think mm -hmm. that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I think hopelessness is what causes suicide. This total sense that there's no way this is gonna get better. That's what they were thinking when they attempted suicide. And they have to know that like, it's not hopeless. It can feel really crappy, really bad. It's really horrible right now, but it can change. It can get better. Mm -hmm. That's what they have to know. Yeah. I think that sometimes when I've seen people out in public that I don't know who are going through something, um, and I'll say, hey, you know, how are you doing? But they, people always say, no, I'm fine. It's like, well, all right, well, I'm just going to sit with you for a little bit. You let me know if you need it. You might borrow my phone to call someone or whatever. And, um, you know, eventually they just like kind of relax. and It's just kind of a nice thing. And I go about my day. But the, it seems that it helps them. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. You're just, your sheer presence is a lot when people are going through something. Presence is huge. And I think because everyone has these phones that it's easy to look like they're busy and mm -hmm. shut down, especially kids at school. Instead of hanging out together in groups, sometimes they're in a group and they were all on their phones. When I was shooting at the high school, I was really sad to see that there'd be a group of kids and yet they'd all be sitting next to each other, not looking at each other, but in their own space, in their own world, looking at their phones. But um, it was too easy for kids that were all alone to just sit off on a corner with their phone and to not be noticed as being mm. alone. So yeah. I think, you know, Jacqueline, the girl that was in the film, she was one of those very compassionate, emotional uh, people that would notice that person that was sitting off alone and go talk to them. Mm. Yeah, with all the new technology and stuff, how do you notice it then? If there's so many just like extra attentive, I just imagine the, I'm thinking of this TED talk that I think the mother, I, I wish I remembered her name versus just the mother of one of the people from Columbine. But the, um, she talked, she wrote a book and she gave this talk about all the things that she missed and like how much that affected her. And she did that because I think a lot of parents worry, what am I missing with my kid? Because like, you know, teenagers are kind of standoffish in general. So then what do you look for? And they don't tell you a lot. If you say, how, yeah. how are you fine? How was school fine? Um, 
I think changes, you look for changes and hmm. it's tough, especially now, like if kids go to their rooms and such, I built my house and I intentionally did not put any televisions in any of the rooms so that everybody would be together. And then they all got cell phones and they or laptops. So they were all off in their own space anyway. But how do you check in on someone who finds it too easy to escape and, and bury themselves somewhere else? So I yeah. think stuff like old fashioned family dinners where people have to show up and sit across from each other for a few minutes. That makes a difference. Hmm. And with what, friends, uh, not just yeah. chatting online and not just chatting on the phone or, but actually saying, well, let's actually get together and have coffee or let's, let's take a walk. Let's mm -hmm. do something. Let's be present. I yeah. think that's what everybody needs is more presence. Is there going to be a 2.0 for this one as well, where you, you grab them when they're like 25 and, you know, that actually oh, would be kind of interesting to see where their lives I'd, are. And... I'd love to, or, or I'd, I'd love to go down to the back to the kids that are in high school now and see what's changed, because I think that it's the social media has only gotten worse and yeah. it's gotten a bigger part of their lifestyles. And, you know, how does that affect their psyche? We were only just starting to identify that when we shot that film that like, you know, Jacqueline had a sense that cell phones and social media was causing them problems. This was before I, as an adult, was doing any of that. So I, when she told me that the last thing she saw before she fell asleep was her cell phone, and the first thing she saw when she woke up was her cell phone, I thought that was so odd. Of course, now I do it. But back then I was like, gosh. So they were already kind of in that space for a longer period of time than I've been. Yeah, apparently, uh, TikTok is just wreaking havoc on women when they're like, I know um, a couple of people in my family where they have teenage daughters and they're like, I know you want to be on TikTok because your friends are on TikTok, but just hold up. Let's get, let's let your brain develop a little bit and you can do it later. You won't miss anything because uh, it's just it's like it, it's rampant. It's like just. The, the body images, all the things that they're just pushing on you. And they have all these filters on them too. It's not like the people there actually are doing and looking great or whatever. They're editing it to look great, right? They're editing out all the bad stuff and they're adding all these filters, which, you know, but that kind of context, I, I guess it's a little, you know, if it just can bombarded to you and the algorithm's designed to like bombard you. Yeah, um, the, a modern a modern version of it as well. Yeah, I could see that being really powerful. Um, and then to give it helped parents too. I could see like parents watching that and be like, oh, that's what they're going through. That's what it's like. They they can hear the voices. At the same time, if you were to do like a repeat where you interview them now and then you like show them the clips of them speaking and then ask them what they would say to them or like what they're feeling, I think that'd be pretty interesting as well. I'd watch that. But I'm I'm just one yeah, person. Yeah, so really to see where they are now too. Some yeah. they've they've all gone on to do different things and yeah, that's yeah, it would be cool. Yeah, if they, if they would come back. I, th I think you can get them back. You just, um, you know, you, uh, you just make them like a really nice meal. Uh, have a family <laughs> dinner. <laughs> you, you get them around your house when it's not fire season. And then um, you're working on a, you are actually working on, an, on a new series, which I believe is called Fly Girls, or if it's a series that is done. Oh, I don't no, know no, that is... was, that was something that I, was before. It was a, oh, okay. Uh, I, we're not working on that right now. It's a, it's, it was actually something that's been, um, we wrote the, the screenplay and then you know different episodes for it but it's not in production right now mm. yeah. oh yeah i read it i read it and i was like oh this sounds like such a, a really unique idea i i look forward to it being up someday 
Um, I hope we get that. I hope we get that going at some point. The story behind Fly Girls are the uh, WASPs, the women uh, Air Force pilots that flew during World War II. And I mean, that was fun writing that because these girls were just like so ahead of their time, mm -hmm. flying planes and they were daredevils. Yeah. I a lot of series that I think are really interesting to do, and this is going to lead to me asking you what we're working on now, but the I would love to learn what Rosie the Riveter did after World War II. You know, like, not just what she did during, but what was, like, the context of when people came back, you know? Because um, There was, there, there's a woman here, and she must be, she's in her 90s, and she, I, she finally retired, but she was working over in, um, one of the army yards or something or the old naval yard in uh richmond and she was a rosie the riveter and i guess she ended up working for the parks and talking mm -hmm. about her past but mm -hmm. yeah i think a lot of them actually unfortunately had to go back to the house when the men came home they lost their jobs yeah yeah i've been i've read some stories of of african americans coming back from the war and people in this yeah they had they had yeah. right they were an even playing field when they were working yeah. when they come back here and they're you know treated unfairly and yeah that yeah there, really there's a, a number of instances where they were just like shot for expecting any respect and stuff in a lot of these towns in the south um which is i don't know good enough to fight for us but not you know for them but not good enough to live with them which is sad the, um, so what are you going to be working on? What are you currently working towards? Or are I'm you like kind of in a gap year? I'm, I know I can't take a gap year. I'm working mm -hmm. on this book and hopefully I'll have that done by January. So by the end of the year, um, I would like to continue on this path with energy. So I mean, you know, I keep myself, I, I keep learning. I, I'm constantly following up on what's going on. Um, I'd love to to shoot more episodes of that because mm -hmm. I think it is rapidly changing and some of the technologies that are coming out are just mind-blowing I mean life is just going to be so much better for us not just because we're not putting out the the fossil fuels but actually you know cheaper more efficient you know it's just win 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 mm -hmm. I, I want I want to dive into that more I also really want to follow the manufacturing that happens in the u.s with the mm -hmm. inflation reduction act i think we're going to see a resurgence in american productivity um which i think we sorely need right now i think that'll be great we need yeah. more workers though so i think we will need to open our borders a little more i know even in california we need the workers here that are the immigrants so that's mm -hmm. my pitch for immigration yeah well, I'm a big fan of immigration in America. Like the part of the Statue of Liberty that says, "Like, give me your poor, your tired, and you know, basically give me everyone you don't want. We'll love them." Right. And right. Uh, I feel like like that's America to me. But I know other people have different opinions, and I respect them. So, um, I keep thinking that you're trying to make a pun with win-win, win-win. Like you're saying, wind, 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 wind. Like no, wind, wind, like, wind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how no, I, I see. That's that's actually how I see renewables. It's just win-win, mm. win-win. Yeah. Cheaper, better, yeah. more efficient. Uh, you know, there's no downside to me in renewables. 
Yeah. So you've, you've dedicated a lot of your life to, in my mind, helping other people. You're getting other people excited for these things. You're making a difference. Um, at the very least, you're, you know, you're changing your, your, your uh, daughter's life. Um, and I know there's many, many other ones as well. What do you, what do you need help with? Like, what are you um, struggling with that maybe a listener can help in with, or I can throw some ideas or something, or maybe your dog can come over and give you a, a pet or something. But what, what's, uh, what are some things you're struggling with that you need help with? Hmm. I guess, I guess actually financing and mm. getting it or, or getting other people involved. I think more than anything, what I want is to partner with more local nonprofits is one of, one of my goals is something called a um, hundred communities for climate action. I want to take my film around to a hundred different communities and partner with the climate action groups that are there. Those that are helping people, um, go all electric in their homes and those that are helping them, you know, understand EVs, um, just helping everywhere, just really engaging on a more local level. So I'm excited mm -hmm. about that. So I want to get on the road and I want partnerships. So if anybody has a local uh, nonprofit that is helping people take those steps to remove fossil fuels from their life, I'd love to partner and do a screening. And how do people contact you? Is there just like a contact form on Empowered or what's the best there, way? There is a, there is a contact um, on the Empowered website. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I get those. Sweet. And then uh, what is, like, if you were to suggest one way for everyone to stay up to date with what you're working on, what is the best way to do that? Probably the website, because I do put, um, you know, current things that we actually even have our schedule too. I have to update it, but schedule of... Um, the PBS schedule, different stations. I, I need to update that, but where you might be able to see um, the show. Mm -hmm. Sweet. And then uh, what I like to look for books. So what books you talked about reading. So I'm excited uh, to hear any recommendations you have for, for at, the, at the least me. And I'll literally read everything you suggest. Oh, let's see. I loved, and this was a novel, The Last Days of Night. Mm, which but you'll probably love it. The Last Days of Night. It it was a New York Times bestseller. It's by Graham Moore. Mm. And it's really fun. It's about uh Tesla and Westinghouse. Oh, uh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. And it's just about the how they decided to go with AC current versus DC. I mean, that probably doesn't sound exciting to anybody else, but it's really well written. It has a great pace and it just brings you into that world of um, innovation. And I mean, that was really an exciting time in history, just as this mm -hmm. is now, but like, you know, early, uh, 20th century when they were really forming all of our energy systems, pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, also ch changing between them, they electrocuted an elephant, that Edison guy <laughs> deliberately electrocuted an elephant to stop Tesla's thing from working like, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah there's some exciting th things that happen there's a there's an episode of bob's burgers where they do i think uh, he did that with a dog didn't he like at least in this book i think he electrified a dog yeah he did an elephant too a, he electrocuted a dog and and people were getting electrocuted on various lines but it's just because they didn't know anything about electricity yeah edison did it on purpose he deliberately yeah. electrocuted an elephant named autopsy Actually, Actually, this book kind of made me not like Edison, to tell you the truth. Yeah, he's a bit but of a dick. Like it. it was much warmer with um, towards Tesla and Westinghouse. Yeah. 
they're also like the little they're like the little duckling you know everyone wants to defend a little duckling you know in yeah. the sense of like people like the underdog story but edison also was kind of a, a jerk so right. it right. like balances out but, but that's funny, a quick read because it's you're written as a like a novel so it's it's fun yeah and well, i'm reading energy by oh shoot of course i don't have it sitting here Is it Lester? I have all kinds of books in here, but. Oh, let's just leave it at that. Sweet. Well, we have one book and then one called Energy. So if anyone can think of anyone finds or knows that book, that'd be funny. Put it in the comments. And we'll, we'll learn it together. All right. I think if it was Lester. No, it's not Lester's book. Mm. But anyway, uh, Kiki, thanks for sharing so much of your day with us today. Um, and I hope everyone will check out the show. I recommend it. Seriously, she didn't pay me to do this. I do it for free. <laughs> she, she, it was it's really, really good. I recommend it. But Kiki, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me.